Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on that. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. The state link, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) They're moving in a different and after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. living his Sexual toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Working Experience Podcast. It is my very great pleasure to welcome Mary Kotsky. She is a producer with Affinity Films, along with other organizations, and she is primarily focused in Alaska. And her documentaries have spanned decades now and have covered such topics as sexual assault and domestic violence, environmental issues, resilience, health, indigenous Alaskans, and displaced peoples. And uh, welcome, Mary. Thank you for being on here. Thank you, Matt, for your interest in what we do up here in the far corner of the U.S. Uh, Just a little background for our listeners. Um, My roommate, former roommate, uh, Chris Scarfile, who has appeared on this podcast, he has been going up, I believe, for the last almost 20 years to work with Mary on her films, and also a good friend, Nara Garber, who was also on an episode of the podcast, who's also a documentary filmmaker, um, has been involved as well. So that is my connection to Mary. And uh, Chris mentioned last time I talked to him that he was going up to Alaska and then he posted something on Facebook about it. And then I thought, well, why not get in touch? And here we are. Uh, Mary has graciously (laughs) agreed to be on with us. Um, So can you tell us about yourself, where you grew up, your education, that kind of thing? Sure. I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, and I um, got married really young to a young airman. We were transferred to Del Rio, Texas, and after about a year and a half, 
I decided I was not ready to be a housewife and I wanted to go to school. So I applied to the University of Texas at Austin. I was in the registration line for social work to get a degree in that. And it was right next to the radio, television and film line. And I looked at the people in my line, I looked at the people in the other line and I jumped ship right there. <laughs> and that was a long time ago. And here we are. Um, Did they have a little so, bit more of charisma to them or? It was just, they were more interesting. They were lively, animated. Uh, they yeah. were <laughs> fit and dressed in interesting ways. And okay. um, I've never looked back. Yeah. I got my undergraduate degree there. And then the idea was, I at that point, that was the uh, late 70s, early 80s. I didn't even realize women could be film directors and producers. I thought the only answer was to be in front of the camera. So I wasn't interested in that. Um, and I applied to law school and went to law school up in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, again, another rash decision after being there a while and seeing the ruthless behavior of the other students stealing cases out of books in the library, et cetera. I thought this isn't going to work with me either. So I took the summer, I took a trip to Alaska for the summer and thought I'd be a cocktail waitress. It's post pipeline days, a lot of money floating around. And I was there 10 days before I got hired to be the, um, the media person for a rape uh, for a um, sexual assault support organization called STAR, Standing Together Against Rape. And I worked with them for a year doing all of their media outreach and decided there was a documentary to be made because the same myths, oh, it's because it's dark up here. We have one of the highest rates, if not the highest rate of sexual assault in the country and uh, oh it's how how she was dressed which i can assure you in 20 below is probably not the reason mm -hmm. and uh so on so i made a documentary called no word for rape i found out in traveling in rural alaska that this was a new concept that a woman could say no they didn't even have a word for it at that point um we've come a long way since then um but i discovered during that process of making that film. And believe me, it was my first professional work and I directed it, whereas my colleagues were all bringing coffee to some slimy producer somewhere. And so I decided this was it. I loved it. And the topics that were interesting to me were all non-commercial. So I, since I had a little bit of background in law school, I formed a nonprofit. I did all the paperwork and the research and just had a, a registered attorney walk it through and get it certified for me. So we are officially a 501c3. So anyone can donate to us and it is a tax deduction. And went on to continue to make approximately one film a year, sometimes two or three shorter ones. But I have quite a body of work now. And I've, I like to joke that people call me when they have something sad or bad to document because our films do tackle very difficult topics, but they're so rich and meaningful. And it's important that 
the process is kind and healing to the people we portray. And I think that's what's kept us alive because it's all been word of mouth. I've never really advertised. We do a little bit of um, fundraising at the end of the year, every year. But other than that, um, it's been commissions and grants the entire time. And somehow I've managed to hang on. <laughs> it's not always been easy, but I, um, this has been my full-time job now for 40 years. Yeah, documentary films are not known for being lucrative, are they? They are not. In fact, a lot of people put their own money into them and never see it back. And that was one rule I made for myself in the beginning. That was one lesson I got in film school. I should mention I went back and got my graduate degree in writing and directing from NYU in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. But there was one rule, which was never put your own money into your films. If you can't convince someone else it's worth it, then you're not going to see that money again. And yeah. for the most part, I agree with that. But you've got the outliers who've had runaway successes with self-funded projects. So it's, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's one that's kept me able to have a house and raise my son mm -hmm. and do some, uh, quite a bit of traveling, which is my passion. So um, this model worked for us. So what is your nonprofit called? It's called Affinity Films because I learned that the kind of films I do are called Affinity Films. They're about things that you care about, but probably no one with money really cares about. And we've covered so many topics over the years from uh, brain injury to uh, cancer survivors, to displaced homemakers, to the homeless population up here, um, you name it, we've probably done a film about it. And the one we, the ones that Chris was just up here for, we're doing a series right now on uh, called Silent No More, featuring uh, Alaska Native women who've been victims of violence or have lost a loved one to murder or other violent acts. And uh, so we did that, and then we also did a film on internet safety for parents. We've had a rash of uh, TikTok motivated violence in our schools. And so we were able to do that as well when Chris was here. And every time he, he and Nara come up, we, we tackle another meaningful uh, topic like that. So what, you mentioned that um, oftentimes people come to you with a subject matter. Yes, that does happen. So when you decide it's a go, uh, what, how exactly do you get started? Like what, what are kind of the, you know, you've decided, okay, I'm going to go tackle this project. What comes after that? Okay. Um, well, um, the first thing, uh, I usually divide the budget into thirds, one third for pre-production preparation, one third for the actual production and one third for post-production. So the first part is doing all the research, all the pre-screening of interviewees, looking at travel costs, figuring out a schedule that is workable, uh, getting commitments from the crew, and so on. So that by the time we go into production, we have a pretty good idea of everything that we're going to cover and how we're going to cover it. And that makes... and. And the other thing that we do is because travel is a major cost here, not only getting 
A-list players up here to work with us, but also to um, get out to the outlying villages, which often costs more than the trip to Alaska costs. So uh, we'll try to do two or three projects. We'll pile them up so that we can cut down on those costs. And there could be a stills photography project in the mix. There could be uh, one brain injury interview and one breast cancer survivor interview in the same trip to a remote area, et cetera. So you might have like multiple projects that you're trying to like kind of combine into like one trip. Exactly. And okay. it, just, it, it comes down to just being really creative and flexible as in our producing, um, coordinating and producing that because that's the only way it can make sense to do it for the kind of budgets we work with. Fairly low budgets. Yeah. When you talk about the budget, are you spending, t like when you hear about a subject, do you then have to spend time getting money for that? Uh, well, th those would be self-generated projects. And yes, of course, I probably spend 60% of my time fundraising and uh, securing contracts and reporting on contracts and only about 40% of doing the hands-on filmmaking work, which is the part that keeps me going and that I love. The rest is a necessity, unfortunately. So you have to, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot. Well, I mean, I guess fictional, you know, people who make fictional films or whatever, they're always talking about like ways to raise, ways to raise money, like crowdsourcing sure. and blah, 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 right. you know. Yeah, that's kind of a, a side of the business that um, they don't really talk too much about in well, it's like not, a lot of people don't know the realities of that. It's not fun. No. But I have to say that, um, you know, every other year or so, somebody comes to us and says, we've got this much money and we want to make a film. That is the gift. Uh, the first time that happened to me was when the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill happened. And the, and the mayor of the, uh, of the city of Valdez said, we need to tell our story because it's not about the oil on the limited beaches um, that are being shown over and over in national news. It's that our town of 3,000 has grown to 10,000 in three days and we can't handle it. We don't have places to park. Our sewage systems are overflowing. There's no daycare. People are renting out their cars for $200 a day. This was a long time ago, so that was a lot. I know with Turo, it's not that much anymore. Mm. So uh, that was a gift. I mean, in 10 days, I had a crew in Valdez and we were shooting. And we used a, we rented a motor home and we had a telephone wire coming down a tree that they brought out there for us. And we just made a film that did really well. And, and a lot of documentary is timing. Um, we were uh, invited to Sunday. Dance. I didn't even know what Sundance was back then. They saw it at the um, the um, IFM, the Independent Film Market in New York City, and they invited us. And then it was also invited to POV and uh, MoMA, and it's been all over the place now. And and Philip Glass signed on to do the music, which didn't hurt one bit. And um, so that that film had great legs. The the uh, recent one we did on brain injury, that was another situation where they were at the end of the year, they had 
funding and they asked us what what could you do for this amount of money so we gave them a few proposals whether it be webios or um, you know 15 minute standalone then they wanted a rap video about brain injury and i i love it when someone comes up with an idea like that and yeah. gives us a chance to really try something new yeah yeah that's amazing so you i mean planet i mean i've done a, a couple of short films myself and i know just with a, a fictional short where you know what you're going to do you have a script and all that that's hard enough to plan but <laughs> with, with a documentary film i mean it seems like you really have to be prepared to be reactive to kind of whatever situation well uh, let me back up a little bit um i was going to ask you talked about traveling like you know you have to go out to an outlying village or uh yeah, an outlying area, I guess. Like, what are the logistics in getting everybody to a place that is not readily accessible by your conventional vehicles? Well, that's a really good question. Um, because, you know, of course, as Chris has grown in his career, he's wanted to have more, more equipment, drones and lights and all of this. And uh, the bush planes are small. And so we've had to do things like really scale down, like pack our clothes in the tripod case with the tripod, that kind of thing. And then uh, Nara is a vegan. So here we are traveling around these villages where they offer us whale meat and seal meat and caribou. Yeah. And so we have to allow for her food to be in there in the equation. Um, so you but, guys have to load onto a bush plane. Yes, we, we you go to a hub, like let's say for instance, Bethel. Um, if you have a map hand, you can see it's on the Kuskokwim Delta. It's on a big, big river, but all the villages are along that river. So we flew to Bethel and then we got in a boat and went up the river 80 miles and stopped in three different villages along the river. And of course they don't have hotels. So we had to have some kind of a sleeping bag with us. Again, another big thing to add to the equation. But um, Alaska Airlines is really good if you live here. You can have two or three bags, depending on your level, free. So we didn't get into too much overage on, on luggage on that one. But we go up the boat and then we'd lug everything from the riverbank up to the school where we'd sleep on the floor in the library, because that's the common way they do it. Uh, some places have ATCO trailers that have been made into hotels. Um, sometimes we've stayed in some really borderline uh, B&Bs. We stayed in one in Fairbanks where a bullet went through the wall one night. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and they crawled out, Army crawled out of there to the uh, owner and said, we just had a bullet go through our wall. And the owner said, oh, he's back again. <laughs> <laughs> the lovable town shooter. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there's been, you know, no end of adventures in our work. And that, I think, keeps us hooked. And then this very strong sense of purpose. Um, we do it because we believe that meaningful media is, can have a purpose in our society. It's not that, you know, I've, I've made as much working two days on a Michelin tire commercial as I do doing an entire um, documentary shoot mm -hmm. and there's something wrong with that equation but 
<laughs> I'm, I'm too tired to try and change it. I'm just accepting it. You know what I found was working, like when I worked as a grip, you know, I'd work sometimes for $100 a day on somebody's low budget feature. Yes. That was a lot of fun. You know, it was a lot, of, it was hard work, but you really kind of bonded with the crew. You got to know the actors. Um, and I had some really good experiences on that. And then you'd work on, as you say, like a commercial and you get like $600 for the day. Right. Like most of the time we were sitting around, it was really easy. I mean, we'd set up some lights right. in the morning. You'd sit there at the studio. They'd shoot, you know, the same shot for six hours. You'd come in right. and the food was amazing. And but yes. it, was, it was boring. Like it was really boring. Right. To do that. But it does so. pay the rent. And, you know, yeah. sometimes I'll do like I did a cast. I do casting because I being here long, this long, I can pretty much pull anybody out of the hat that somebody needs. And I did a casting for a Heineken beer commercial that was, you know, really really well paying um yeah. yeah so i i get that you have to balance it but um you know for the most part i just keep working on what i'm working on and i've had a couple of fellowships over the years that's been helpful um and then just being creative i wrote a book during the pandemic because we couldn't shoot so i wrote a book called one good man oh wow okay and I lost you a little bit there for a sec. Yeah, I'm kind of, I lost you there. Hello? I'm here. Uh-oh. Uh, okay. I can hear happened? you now. I can hear you now. Okay, okay. Where'd you uh, lose me? Uh, I think you'd mentioned you wrote a book called One Good Man. Okay, that's all I said, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you, you fly to Bethel, you get on the... Um, what is it called again? I'm sorry. Boat. Yeah, you get on the, the boat. You called it a sled of sorts? Uh, no, I didn't use the word sled in no, this case. We have used sled. sleds. When we went up to uh, Savunga, um, which is halfway to Russia, we um, ATVs are a real common form, and then they'll put things in a wagon behind it, or if it's wintertime, they'll put it in a sled. We use sleds when we went up to work on something for the Smithsonian about um, uh, the native culture up there. And, and we were fortunate enough to witness a whale capture. And we had to go two miles out on the pack ice on these wooden sleds <clears throat> that they pulled with snow machines that you know would go up these ice chunks and slam down at the bottom. Oh my goodness. It was something else, but we did it, and uh, we still talk about that shoot because they, the producers from LA landed and they said we want to film a whale harvest, and we're looking at them like, well, that isn't something you could just schedule, you know. So right, <laughs> in the middle of the night we got the call; they just landed one, so we got everybody up, got them out there. So when you um, arrive at a village. And, you know, you, you've got the crew on, you unload, and you mentioned um, screening interviewees. So are you going to the people you're going to talk to? You're, you're sitting them down, you're setting up the camera. Like, how does that process kind of work? Because, you know, talking to people about some of these subject matters is obviously very delicate. So Absolutely. Absolutely. When you say screening, like, are you kind of prepping them? 
for what you're going to talk about? And then how, yeah. how does, how, what's the feeling behind that? Well, because, because villages are so complicated to get to, we try to lay as much groundwork in advance as possible. And, and Facebook has become the new short radio for the villages. So if you want to uh, ever want to spend an interesting night, just browse through the Facebook messages from, say, Point Hope or Savunga or somewhere, they'll talk about, uh, you know, so-and-so's got a pot of caribou stew on, come by at six o'clock. Um, and so we do that for our casting, say, we're, who we are, we'll give them the website so they can see that we're legit and we've done a lot of work around Alaska. And then we'll say we are specifically seeking someone who, and then we'll say what it is. And then it works. People get back to us and say, well, um, I'd be willing to talk about that. And then when we arrive, we go and meet with them, make sure they're sober, first of all, or whatever pro problems could be in the mix, and that they're available. They're not hunting or they're not off fishing on the day we're going to uh, try to do this. And then, um, and then we'll sit down and have our interview. And there's so much, uh, when we've done that much, there's a lot of earnestness and welcoming that goes on. And then typically there's a gift. We bring a gift to the village, whether it's a big basket of fruit or in some cases uh, seafood, like they don't get halibut in one place or they don't get salmon in another place. We try to bring something like that just to show our, our goodwill, our good, good intentions, and that we're lifelong Alaska. And that helps a lot too, because we don't, we're not uh, like the outside people that come in and just take and leave we're 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 feeling responsible to our communities and is there is there ever any like uh pushback like you get there and it, it wasn't what you thought it was going to be or there are people in the village who are perhaps not happy that you're there to talk about a particular subject oh yes i'm sure that over the years we've had many of those we had one situation um where we had hired, we had paid to, um, to rent someone's house for the location to do the interviews. And then uh, he took them, he wanted it in advance. We, we did the money in advance. I don't remember how we did that because uh, that was a few years ago, but he spent the money on alcohol and met us with a shotgun drunk. Mm. And uh, we had to, make really rapid changes in what we're going to do. We've also had lovely surprises where we've been invited to potlatches, which are um, community uh, potlucks, and uh, been able to meet everyone and just been uh, treated so well. So it's, it's, it has run the gamut, but mostly I'd say with our prep work in place that it goes it goes really smoothly. There's always something that'll happen, whether it's weather. Um, when Chris went up to Point Hope to work on one of our um, missing and murdered Indigenous women's stories, um, he got weathered in, um, you know, the, and had to spend an unexpected night in uh, Cotsview because that was the, the hub. And, uh, and there was very few hotel rooms because everybody was weathered in 
So we wound up staying in kind of a marginal place. That kind of stuff happens. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what, um, you know, if you're going to a place to, you know, example, for, for example, talk about something to do with sexual assault, domestic violence, what is the motivation of the person who agrees to be on camera or who agrees to talk to you? Well, um, by now we have about 27 um, members of the Alaska, let's see, I gotta remember what it's called now. It's the Alaska Commission on Sexual Assault and Violence. They have offices all over the state. So we usually work through those for that topic because they um, know who's willing to speak and who's motivated to see change in the village. And we don't just go cold and door to door and say, do you want to talk about crimes in your family or something? Right. The people are already up to speed due to these, the, the local components of the uh, network around the state. So, um, so there's a, well, I, I guess I meant like if someone has been a victim themselves, are they looking for, do you think they find the process healing? Do they find they, they want their voice to be heard? Like, look, this yeah. happened to me. Yeah. Um, and, and they're, uh, they're admired as being brave and for helping their people by, by the community. So, um, the problem, the tricky part on that topic is when the perpetrators are related to uh, everything. Most of them. <laughs> so if they moved out, that's helpful. If they moved to Anchorage, that's helpful. Um, or, or Fairbanks or a, a hub, and they're not in their tiny community anymore. So, yeah, I mean, that that's part of the overall problem is that the troopers and the uh, the perpetrators and the victim are probably all related either by marriage or or directly mm. yeah that, I, I assume that can create a, a very complicated situation within the uh, the family or within the community I, I can imagine somebody speaking up and then having to live there and you know exactly yeah exactly. and we're we're, you know, we're sensitive to that. We understand if somebody decides, changes their mind or something, there's no pressure. It's not, we're not, uh, you know, Dateline or anything. We're not going in and power, powering our way into people's homes and lives. They have to want to, they want, they want, they have to want to see change and understand that what we're doing is working with them. Right. Yeah. I guess it can be a fine line um, between being exploitative like a dateline who, you know, I don't really watch it much, but I kind of feel like some of this should not be, well, some, a lot of it should not be entertainment. Like, exactly. you know, and I don't know where that, I guess it's not an exact line, but you know, you, people need to be aware, but it's also not something to like just occupy an hour on a Saturday night or something. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it is very delicate. I, I don't know what made me think of it, but it was um, kind of like what happens after the cameras leave and the, the documentary or the show is done. Like, 
the subjects still have to go on with the rest of their lives that we never really get to see. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons we always show it to them first. And we tell them we can't add anything, but we can take things out. So if there's something in here that makes you uncomfortable or, you know, like you said, you want to take the name something out, we can do that. But we do the courtesy of that. And also there's a long enough time between when they give the interview and when the film is completed that um, they're ready. You know, they've seen it a couple of times. We might have shown them a rough cut. We might have shown them the fine cut weeks in advance of any kind of sharing. But um, yeah, I don't think that we look at our work as entertaining so much as engaging and enlightening and raising awareness and story sharing. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of an example, but the, the really good documentaries I've seen, like, right. I mean, they, they are engaging because you obviously have to engage your audience, but. Yes, yes, you still have to use good storytelling skills. Right, and, but, and then you also, you know, I, I guess the authentic ones, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, is, is there's obviously a point behind it. Like you'd like to see some change, some improvement because of this awareness you've raised. Yeah. Have you so, seen? Oh, I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna ask if you'd seen the, um, the one about Audrey and Shelley. Uh, no, I'll write that it, down. It's, yeah, it's not necessarily brand new, but boy, is it powerful. And it's a very personal story of her, her murder that they called a suicide at first until they really got into the details. But it was made by her husband. Oh, who, wow. Yeah, he did a beautiful job. It stayed with me for hours. That's always a measure, right? When it's stuck yeah. in your craw for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, between like a, that's the difference between like a dateline where, I mean, who remembers any of that or cares right. particularly, but um, well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned storytelling, like how do you, cause again, you can't really write a script for a documentary and plan shots and, you know, like you would for a fictional film so how do you is that more in the editing of it or how much of that is in your mind before you even start filming the the storytelling part of it and the engagement of the audience well i mean it's the same old formula beginning middle and end and then um like i'll give you another example oh, it's with it's called about face the story of Gwendolyn Bradshaw. And uh, she was a, a victim of postpartum psychosis when she was an infant. Her mother put her in a fire. His voice has told her to. And uh, the story starts when the young woman is 24 and is being admitted to the same psychiatric institute that her mother went to after the incident. And uh, they told her they recognized her name and, that, and told her what had happened. And she made a really powerful resolution then not to repeat that. And she, I had known her because she'd grown up next to me in my same neighborhood. She came to me and said, I, I want this like a job and I want you to do it as well. That was a gift. It was a wonderful gift. 
I'm kind of losing your your audio there. Hmm. I wonder why. I can what hear, are you hearing? I, I hear like a lot of shifting and I don't know, like papers or something. I'm not shifting papers, but my dog does have a bone. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh. Yeah. I I just I lost you a little bit after you said um she you live next to her and she came to you. Yes. So so she. She came to me with the resolution that she did not want to repeat what happened to her mother. Go over there and get your ball. Go get it. And um, and I I call that a gift. That was a ma um, a major gift. We did a five minute teaser, and we were able to. I was able to get a fellowship just on a five minute teaser. Then the teaser. I mean the. Uh, we, I used my fellowship to get the first 20 minutes cut. And then uh, we got real funding from Chicken and Egg Productions. And we were able to continue to follow her because what I figured was going to be the final act three was going to be her finding her mother because her mother was off the grid for her whole growing up. And that took several attempts. So you had conflict all along the way of her flying here and trying this and going to homeless shelters in Indiana and and then you know finally finding her in a bus stop in Vermont and then that night there they stayed up all night talking we filmed that whole thing and then what happened with that and then so we had our our third act and it was amazing because the second act was all of her searching and her struggling. The first act was just the setup, what, what it was like for her growing up as severely disfigured from this burning and being bullied and trying to ferret her way through with a father that was resentful that he was stuck raising her by himself, et cetera. So there you had story structure, story elements, and. She insists on laying right next to the computer and chewing. <laughs> um, they like to be part of the family. <laughs> well, they like to bring you their most treasured element, which is this raw bone she got from the butcher. Um, anyway, I, I feel like that was one of my better works was uh, About Face. And there's a dedicated website to that. It's called aboutfacefilm.org. And there's a teaser on there. You can see that. That that was featured at Hot Docs in Canada. You know, I think Chris worked on this, or he told me about this years ago. Yeah, he did. He worked on some of it. And Nara was the main DP. At that point, Chris was mostly gaffing. Right. But now Chris okay. is shooting too, of course. Yeah. Now, did you travel with her from Indiana to Vermont? And Yes. Wow. So it was kind of like a detective element to yes. it, like you were trying to track this woman down yes we just want she would she just wants to know why her mother did that to her yeah and then you know having some hope of forgiving and having some hope of a relationship and that's when you know all hell breaks loose with i don't want to give it away no spoiler alerts <laughs> yeah yeah i'd like to watch it so what what happens if you don't find her mother like this is what, like when you write a fictional film you you plan it you cast her mother there's no question as long as you have the money but what right. what, ha what happens if you don't find her mother well funny you should ask that because after our 
third or fourth attempt, we were ready to give up. And we had designed all these different, like we thought we'd have like kind of an imaginary uh, ending where she would go to a door and it would open and then we'd have like six different versions of her mother for everything from, you know, uh, an alcoholic in curlers to a professional who's moved on with her life to Betty Crocker with cookies. We, we had it all scripted out and that's what we were gonna do. And at the very last minute, this volunteer detective said, I think I know where her mother is. Wow. She had access to social security transactions, which of course we did not. She said she just cashed a check a day ago in Burlington, Vermont. Huh. And so we, because we had this funding from chicken and egg, we took a wild chance and Gwen and I and Nara flew to Vermont that night. And it was like, it was like divine intervention or something. We found her. Hmm. That's amazing. And so that makes Are you, sense. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I'm just saying that that's, that's, that's part of what makes the documentary compelling. So are you okay with like, because there's so, so many different schools of thought on this, like there's Errol Morris, who basically started the whole reenactment, um, you know, yes. idea and, and said, there, there's a great documentary about the making of the Thin Blue Line, where he talks about yes. these things. And yes. Like, that was a huge no-no. You never did reenactments. Right. Right. And you never lit anything and you know like why would you have actors in a documentary and right and then he was i mean i i really like him i like him personally like i like listening to him because he's uh he's such like an underdog you know and um yes and he, and he raised so many interesting points where it's like well if you don't really have the truth to film on camera then you have to it's sort of like creative nonfiction, I guess is the genre I would put it in. Um, so are you, you know, yeah. do you, I was going to say like, you were going to come up with these different endings to not say, well, look, this is what happened, but here are some possibilities. Right. To just kind of do a, like a dream sequence or something. Well, I went back to school with the specific goal of learning narrative filmmaking so I could do hybrid filmmaking, documentary and narrative. And so this was a perfect way to uh, realize that. And we're just, we just did that now with one of our um, uh, Silent No More episodes is we have reenacted what happened to her, but we're never pretending it's real. We're, we're always upfront with the idea that it is uh, a reenactment and to visualize, to give an impression. We call them impressionistic imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I mean, you can kind of see both sides of it. You know, some people are like, no, 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 it's just what's in the frame and whatnot. But there's so much that goes on before and after and outside of that interview that. Uh, I guess it just adds context, you know, that is. Well, necessary. I think it's accepted. I think it's accepted now. I don't think it was back then. And, but it's, it's a constantly evolving art form, documentary filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. 
I thought one of the best ones I've ever seen, and Chris and I are big fans of American movie. It's about Mark Borchardt, who um, he's trying to get this film made. He lives in Minnesota in Mamaw. Yes, I've seen it. Yes. Yeah, I watched that so many times. And there's a great director's commentary and making of. And that that was just about a bunch of filmmakers. And then they focused in on him because he was the most interesting one. And it always kind of fascinates me because you watch the finished product and I always think, oh, this must have been what they meant to do. And no, it was as many... Pro- well, Errol Morris said his films never end up where he thinks they're going to go. And that's always interesting about documentary to me because you have to, you know, it'll take you in different directions, I guess, depending Absolutely. on... Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like what... Uh, I interviewed a guy who wrote a book. We were talking before we started the podcast about... Um, this Charles Manson book he wrote and you know I asked him how he did the research and he said well you know you go talk to one person and they drop a name and I'd go to a file and I'd find that person's name then I'd find five other names and I'd have to go track them down and it just it's this it took him 20 years to write it because it just kept you know kept on sure Um, yeah so um what is your I mean, the impact, you know, we've kind of talked about the impact that your work, that you'd like your work to have on audiences, like, you know, raising awareness. But what's, how has your work impacted you? Like, in the course of the 40 years that you've been doing it, like, what what have you, you know, learned or, or come to see about film or about society or what's been the impact on you, just as a person? Wow. Um well, to give you an example, I was offered a full-time job working for the State Film Commission, and I thought, wow, I wouldn't have to fundraise. I'd have benefits. I would know every month what was coming in and what I'd be doing. I lasted four months. Hmm. Uh, that's the only time I've worked full-time for someone else in 40 years. And that's because I realized that having purpose and meaning in my daily work was ultimately more important, both health-wise and emotions and every level than it was to have those other things. Mm. So that's what it's meant. And what it keeps me intellectually stimulated because every topic I have to learn new things. Uh, For instance, in this short, we just finished on the internet. I didn't know many of the things I learned in the process of that. Um, Particularly in that case, um, how young teens are emulating, are copying self-harm techniques from Snapchat and Instagram. I didn't know that until I heard it from a girl. She was a victim of that. Wow. And yeah, it was shocking to me. And the addictive nature of that, she said, once you do it and you stumble on it, you find yourself wanting to go back and see more. Jeez. Which, yeah, <laughs> scary, horrifying thing. And I'm thinking of, I don't know that. I bet other parents don't know that. Yeah. So, um, so there's that. And then uh, learning about every woman we've interviewed for Silent No More is from a different culture in Alaska. We have at 
at least 13 different types, I guess, of Alaska natives identify with different, you know, whether it's Athabascan or Aleut or you pick, learning what the differences are in those communities and what the, you know, the beauty and their art and how that's different. So every project brings um, a, a welcome learning curve. You know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I never knew that. I always just thought of indigenous Alaskan people. I, I did not know that there were different, you know, cultures and communities and that sort oh, of thing. Yes. With different There's languages as well? Absolutely. Different languages, different food, different customs. I meet so many people that have traveled all over the world to find those things, and it's right here. Mm. You know, they, they, they have different... Um, basket weaving patterns, different clothing, uh, different favorite foods, different language, different dance styles. Uh, and that's, you're uh, um, among the majority. I think they're all Eskimos. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, that's what I always learned or didn't learn in school. I mean, never really learned much about it. It was the unit in the fourth grade textbook and, you know, Maybe. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that was about. If you had a good teacher, you'd do a little project on it, but that was about right. it. You know, you never got to to learn too much about it. Um, so, what would you just to kind of wrap us up here? I mean, there, there's a lot of people who are you know interested in filmmaking, interested in documentary filmmaking, uh, interested in using that genre to do some good, raise some awareness. Um, what advice would you have for people who want to maybe dive in and do what you do? Like maybe what, what realities should they be aware of and you know, how would they get started? That kind of thing. Well, I think one good way is to intern with a company like ours and most years, every summer we've had uh, an intern and, and these interns have gone on. Carla Murthy was one one year. She, she works for, um, or worked, she works with PBS, um, and his name is eluding me now. Charlie, you know who I mean? From P Charlie, no, I, I couldn't call. Does the on the road thing? Well, anyway, um, another one. She was a Japanese exchange student here. She went back to Japan and worked for NHK. And th there are many success stories like that um, because they have to roll up their sleeves and I make them do everything from fundraising to pre-production to post-production. They learn every aspect. So that's one way is to intern with an established company uh, somewhere near where they live so they can live with their parents and not have any expenses. Because internships usually just give a modest stipend. Another thing is if you have one subject you're very passionate about, to shoot a teaser. We've gotten a lot of mileage out of our teasers or fundraising trailer or whatever you want to call it that gives a sense of the emotion and the story that they would be supporting. And then align with the 501c3 who can there's many of those around too. Women Make Movies is out in New York. There are many 501c3s that can receive their grant funds and redistribute to them if they don't have the wherewithal to start a nonprofit. And most people don't. It's mm. become more and more difficult to get one, which is why we 
protect our status so carefully, dotting every I and crossing every T on our IRS reports, et cetera, board meetings annually and so on, because it's, it's precious to be able to have this where people can donate to what we're doing and get a tax write-off. Right, right. There are, yeah, there are many umbrella organizations to do that. So I guess those would be three things I'd recommend. So try to reach out to a company who does these things and, and get on and learn with them. Yes. Okay. I can't really say, you know, I've, I've got plenty of schooling, four years of, on my master's, four years on undergrad. And I can't really say um, that it's helped me get anything. I mean, sometimes they uh, will look at your pedigree for fellowships, et cetera. But the real learning is is doing it. And nowadays, it's not the model. I grew up with the model um, where you had someone direct, someone produce, someone edit. Now, uh, the young population is doing it all themselves. So if they've got a camera, and the cameras are so much better now and so much easier. I've probably been through 25 renditions of the technology since I started, because I started on VHS and three quarter inch and beta. I've been through it all. Right. And now people are doing it with their iPhones and it looks pretty, pretty doable in a lot of cases. You need an um, iPhone and a, uh, yeah, you need a phone and an Osmo and you're pretty good to go. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Especially yeah. it's still going to matter the most is what your story is. Um, you know, all those fancy drone shots and things, they, they add uh, frills, but if, if the story is something hum humans relate to and can feel, that's going to get you in the door faster than anything else you do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like drone shots are nice, but I feel like I've seen a thousand of them already and you know, it's, it's fine, but it, it's funny how technology has opened things up so much, but you still got to have the story. You still got to, you know, like yes. teach people something you still have to all all the nice shots in the world are not going to sell it that's right yeah just having that person talking to the camera who has a compelling story and and they're compelling and yeah i, I no technology is going to be able to touch that exactly that's the takeaway is there anything where somebody comes to intern and they're like oh man i didn't know i had to do that yes <laughs> <laughs> I did I did lose one intern midstream. She said, this is too hard. I just can't do this. And she went back to college and got a degree, got her M MSW, and she's a social worker. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, right? Yeah, Given yeah. That's where I mean, he started. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, people love watching movies and all that, and, th and then they go into a film set, and it's like, it's one of the most boring places ever. I mean, you just like- Paint by numbers. <laughs> Yeah, like you set up lights and you work, and then it's like, okay, we got that shot, moving on, and then they're just moving lights yeah. around again. And right, and it's, it's not, not even in order. No, it's not in any order, and it's just. Is that one uh, second, please? Yeah, yeah, sure. Hello? Yes. Okay, she'll be ready. I'm going to put her in a raincoat today. Okay, all right. Okay. Bye. Okay. okay, that's the famous dog pickup I was telling you was going to happen around 1.30. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, well, we'll wrap it up here. That was great. I, I really went well. Um, I'll just do my little wrap up here. Uh, 
Mary Kotsky, thank you so much for being on with us at the Working Experience <laughs> Podcast. Uh, everybody keep an eye out for Affinity Films. Watch the documentaries, enlighten yourself. And uh, again, thank you so much. And like us on Facebook. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.